0: Hello, comedy geeks, comedy nerds, friends of the comedy. I'm Mike George.
1: And I'm Masavia Greer. Today on Comedy Anatomy, we have the very funny Pete
0: Dominic. Pete is a stand up comedian and talk show host who had his own show on Sirius Radio for over 14 years. He's also been a correspondent for John King on CNN and has appeared on Real Time with Bill Maher, The Joe Rogan Experience, and now has his very own successful podcast called Stand Up with Pete Dominic.
1: Now enjoy our conversation with Pete Dominic.
0: Thank you for coming on today, man. This
2: is a really big deal for you guys.
0: It is a big deal. Nice to meet you, Pete.
2: Nice to meet you too, Mike. You look good too, man. Uh, Thank you very much, buddy. It's so great to see you. I'm psyched. I'm really excited to be here. I I don't, uh, I mostly host the show and have mostly host show. Even when I met Mo, I was. Well, to, to that point, when you
0: were younger, what did you want out of your career?
2: Bill Burr and I used to be really close and pal around uh, the city and the clubs for a couple of years. And, and, uh, you know, I'd often ask him and all my comic friends about their dreams and what they wanted from their career. And he, he said, he really just wanted a great, you know, a body of work, like a lot of albums. And so he's done that and more because he's an actor now as well. But I wanted to, to make more of an impact in Society and on the world, and 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 make a difference in it in a different kind of way than just being an entertainer. And so, because of 9/11, and then becoming a, a father, living through 9/11 in, in New York City, and then becoming a father, I just became a more serious person, um, looking at the world and 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 wanting to ask about why it was the way it was, and what, if anything, I could do to, I guess facilitate a a conversation where people could learn and grow and understand how the world works and why it works that way. And so that's where where I still am now in that space as well as still, you know, in in the comedy space. But it's been a, a fascinating career to try all of these different things. But I just wanted to have something more consequential in my life, in my career. And I wanted to make a, a better, a more of a contribution than just entertaining and just making people laugh. I wanted to make folks think, and I wanted to do that not through my own voice, but through, you know, a conversation and, and asking other really smart people to join me in that conversation. And so that's that's really what I've been doing for the last almost 15 years.
0: Yeah and you've had some conversations with some very smart people. Some great
2: conversations. too, Pete, I was thinking too like
1: back then when you decided to do this, uh did you realize it would be
2: such a big form now? Yeah, I think I think that when you're doing comedy and you think about your the largest audience you've ever performed in front of, most of your career you're performing if it's a packed house in front of a few hundred people at, at you know comedy clubs anywhere from 2 to to 400 people or so most comedy clubs. And then there are, you know, bigger theaters with maybe a a thousand, 2000 and and some guys end up touring either being a a huge name, selling out arenas and giant theaters or opening for them. And I I had the opportunity to open for a guy who sold a lot of tickets, uh, several guys who did, but specifically Artie Lang in doing theater performances uh, at some huge venues, Avery Fisher hall and Wilbur theater and uh, theater in DC. And I mean, I I toured with them for a few years on and off and, but the most we ever had was I think like 6,000 in LA. And that's uh, where I met Ron Jeremy the second time that's for later. But (laughs) I, when I first sat behind the microphone at Sirius XM, I thought, well, However many people I'm talking to it's many arenas full of people. So if it was, you know, 50,000 people listening in their cars across the country in Canada or if it was a million, I don't know, I never knew. it wasn't a massive, you know, army of people every day at SiriusXM because there's so many channels and so on, but I over the, you know, f- almost 15, almost 14 years I was there, I would always think about the theater the comedy club and that venue and a few hundred people and i'll be looking at them versus sitting in a studio alone but really having thousands and thousands of people hearing my conversation and that was something i had to get used to but it was something that was i, I was able to get really and still get super excited giddy about doing
0: you know what's interesting it made it made me want to ask you a question that i think for a young comic you're 20 you're you're 22. And I don't think this is a question you can ask a lot of comedians. You sound like you had purpose beyond, I want to be funny. I want to be famous, which is, you know, a lot of people say, no, it's about the craft. And for some people it is, it's great, but it sounds like you instilled within yourself a bigger purpose. What advice would you give to a, a, a young comedian right now?
2: Well, I would say, like, I probably should have been more concise with my answer when you asked this, you know, you know earlier when you asked what I kind of I want, because I think there's something between being driven by money and fame. And and we, we lose that because it's not as sexy to talk about the idea that you want to be able to make enough money doing comedy that you can own a home in a place that you enjoy living and have time to spend with a family that you might raise in that home and community. Like that was my ambition, guys. My ambition was to give, to have children and offer them a similar life that my parents offered me, which was awesome. Like my life was awesome growing up. In upstate New York, on the lakes and in the fields, and like I had an awesome childhood. I had a half pipe. We skied, we snowboarded. I was always outside. I was like constantly uh, having sex with different women every day. Okay, sorry, uh, I never had sex actually until I left that place. But
0: comedian ever who had like the dream childhood? Is that what we're saying here? Like <laughs> yes,
2: yes. No, I always thought that my I would never be a great comedian because i didn't have enough tragedy and negativity and adversity to draw from i had a great life i mean i mean my story is not like it's not that sexy my, my dad's a real funny guy my dad is a guy who would tell stories and everybody liked my dad my dad's a popular guy people would come over my dad would tell stories everybody would laugh he'd do the voices and then this guy comes over here and he says that was my dad and i would watch everybody laugh and then i copied him I think I remember
1: meeting your dad. Sorry to cut you off,
2: but. Oh, everybody. My dad was in the comedy scene a little bit. I'm like, he would ha- meaning he would hang out with me. A lot of guys did know my dad. My dad's a cool, hip guy. He, he's a ski instructor and drove a fucking Corvette and owned an insurance agency and was cool because he was married to my mom was even cooler than him. And like my dad was funny. And, and so that made me funny. And I was small. And so I needed humor as a way to defend myself and as a way to make friends with people and get girls to like me being a real small person often can lead to also being a funny person. In my case, it did with the combination of my dad. And that was it. And I had my brother's, my older brother was, is very funny. He wrote my first comedy sketches, which I did at talent shows in high school. They're like, what's your talent? I'm like, I don't have one, but I'll host this motherfucker. And I hosted the talent show doing impressions of Dana Carvey's impressions of George Bush, Bill Clinton and Ross Pro. And I killed.
0: You were hooked. Is that where you got hooked?
2: for sure i was i was hooked when i was in class mike and there was 25 kids and i made a joke and everybody laughed at me done in boom let's do it you can make money doing this let's go let's ride
1: well i mean you know i was just curious because like in today's environment i mean you deal a lot with politics and different issues but today's politics and the way the, the tribal thing yeah It seems like if you had to start comedy today, I mean, what would you write? How would you approach it to have your audience like two audiences, red and blue?
2: It's easy to perform for hundreds, if not thousands of people and not divide them. It's real easy. You just don't you just don't pick the issues that are divisive. You know, the other thing about me and my comedy was that I wanted just to work. Like I wanted every gig, every paying gig that was, we're going to give you a microphone and you're going to make this room laugh. I was like, yes, I'll do it because I liked making money. And so I thought the best way to make money and, and earn a living as a comedian was to make myself as versatile as possible. So I wanted to be able to perform for every other audience. And then, you know, again, you could say, well, then, you know, it's hard to be a great comedian, and be that versatile. I think a lot about a guy like Jim Norton, who's a great comic, but he's not gonna get booked for many of the shows that I'm getting booked for because his, his routine is too edgy. It's too, whatever whatever people wanna call it. I can do any room, anywhere, anytime. All Jewish kids at a conservative synagogue, boom, I'm there at 250 bucks. I mean, these are, I the old the show, prices. these are the old prices. Uh, the camp shows at Stand Up New York.
1: I remember uh, those.
2: All black teachers union, all black people, all black women done. Where is it? Give me the directions. I'll fucking dry. Uh, opening for Joan Rivers at Atlantic city, 500 bucks. Bomb. yes, bombed by the way, because I did a, a George Bush joke and they didn't like it speaking of divisive. But the point is I wanted to work. And to this day, I'll go on stage. I don't care if it's all Trump supporters. And even if they know I hate Donald Trump, I'll just talk about sleeping. For an hour, everybody sleeps, talk about eating. I can talk about anything. Right. Anything. I'm not the most prolific joke writer. I'm not like, but if you put me in a room, I can relate. I was the warm-up comedian at the Colbert report for six years. Put me in a room. Give me a microphone. Tell me who's in the room if possible. But if you don't have time, if you're not organized, just, just give me the mic. We'll figure it out. And I will destroy.
1: That's a great talent, Pete, because it's very difficult. I mean, I, and I've seen so many comics and, and sometimes they get put in a bag, you know, like, okay, you're this particular. And and I know we would call you anytime when we'd had these shows, these kids shows, any kind of show, you were like, Mo, give me a call. I'm right around the corner. And I just remember that is, um, that is a special gift.
2: I'm survival, not- survival. It's you walk on stage, you have to make these people laugh. What are you going to do? I was the kind of comedian who developed the, the skill set that. Uh, well, first of all, I, that was my aim. I want to make any audience laugh so I can get booked for any gig, host it, middle it, close it wherever. I don't care what the demographic of the audience is, the fundraiser. It doesn't matter. I'm there. And so I developed I thought that was your job, by the way, as a comedian. I mean, that was just the way my my weird brain thought that was what I thought I was supposed to do, develop all of my skills so that no matter what the audience is, I don't want to. divide. By the way, my comedy is a lot different than, you know, everything I do on the radio and now with my podcast and everything else, which is like, I just want to make everybody laugh. I'm not trying to teach people through humor. I do have like all kinds of material that could be considered political or divisive, my you know, my act right now, the the hour I taped last year, I did like 20 minutes on the Catholic church that I grew up in, you know, but it's, it's not a uh, pro. <laughs> so, like, I have it in my app, but I go to it. I'm able to pick and choose in my head. What does this audience need right now? What do they want? What do they not want? I'll give them whatever they need, whether it's a room full of cops or a room full of you know, Antifa, which by the way, I want to plug, I'll be hosting the Antifa 2021 benefit and bizarre at the Binghamton Grange on uh, December 21st.
0: I'm sorry. I'd like to say for me and Mo, we will be there and we go every year and we're really excited to, to see there. Yeah. So you weren't, what about when comics say, cause we've had them on here. Well, nothing's more important than finding your voice.
2: Meh. Nah. Yeah.
0: No, but you must have had the conversation. You, you must have talked to comics about this. At
2: well, I've talked to comics about everything.
0: Yes. Yeah, so what, what is your answer when they say, yeah, but, you know, I've got a very specific voice and, yeah, I don't play everywhere. You know, is that I, you uh, agree with? You never worried about?
2: I don't like someone saying the most important thing is blank about much in life. The most important thing about being a man, the most important thing about comedy. I absolutely Mike, think that's a great point that you're making. I think a lot of comics talk about that. I think if you were to say, you know, what's your, your, your best advice for a young comedian or something, you know, there'd be any number of things I could talk about. But I think the most important thing to do is if I had to answer, I would say like, enjoy what you're doing and and enjoy it. Because if, if you don't enjoy it, then, Um, What are you doing? Because it's a brutal way to make a living because it's so spotty, the money, and it's hard to have a a relationship with a person, period. Like, it's I have a lot of jokes in my act about how it's like, I didn't blame my my then girlfriend and wife for like not being interested in dating the comedian. It seems all sexy at first. And then after like the third week, like the third week, you're like, The basic natural reaction is, listen, I work like 99% of normal people Monday through Friday, and you're gone every weekend. Like the time I want to hang out with you, you're gone. That's the only time you really work. It doesn't lend itself to a relationship. It doesn't lend itself to, a, 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 you know, steady financial security or raising a family. And it's really hard to make a life work. So unless you're enjoying the craft and the work and you feel, feel purpose driven, then I would say, what are you doing? There's a billion other things that you could but do. for the
1: with- support of your wife, right, and your family. I mean... I, uh, what, I mean, was there an underlying pressure like, hey, I got to hurry up and make some money so I can feed I, my family? Yeah.
2: Or? No, I didn't. Have, I did not have. It did not have the support of my wife. It did not. She said to me, listen, I love you. I want to spend my life with you, but I don't like your line of work. It sucks. People treat you poorly. You have to allow them not interested in that. The money is hit or miss. Some, some months you make a shitload of money, and other months you don't. Um, the lifestyle is crap. I don't like any of that. I like you. I like your character. I think you're awesome. I love that you love what you're doing, but I don't want that. And I just kept coming back to her and being like, Well, how about this? Boom, gig, gig, gig. And then the gigs and the career got so good that she was like, Oh, you're very, very, uh rare and exceptionally talented. And, you know, she once I was getting a check from Comedy Central, CNN and Sirius XM, then in addition, really, <laughs> doing other gigs, in addition, doing, you know, then it was like she was just like, where do you want to have sex and win, except for the part where that never happened ever. My wife has never been impressed with me. Right. Still Still is not like the the things that impress my wife have nothing to do with materialism. None of it. None. of. I remember it. your wife. She's a
1: love. She was very sweet, man. I remember she would come to stand up with you. Um, Then
2: your girlfriend. But yeah,
1: this yeah. is always down to earth. Yeah. I mean,
0: so, so down you, to
2: earth. Not sweet. You were wrong on sweet. You were right on down to earth. Like she'll uh, rephrase that then. It's just that, like if you if you when you met her. Like, yeah. even though you had power over me as the booker, as the, you know, as a guy who was in, uh, on the other side of, of, of the comedy table than me, you were the decider back I'm then. Scared like, of you, Pete. When I think of you back then, I think of you with, like, your knee up on a on a chair with a toothpick in your mouth, just 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 judging comics, <laughs> twisting it and going, I and then going, like, to me, like, 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 tussling my hair and go, you're good, you're good, you're very good. But, like, when I, and then you respecting me and being just a kind person and a good person, which is, I was like, what are you doing in this business? Well, you know
1: what, Pete, you always look people in the eye. And uh, I always found you just a stand up fucking guy, man. Like, you look guys in the face and tell them what's
2: on your mind. I really never compromised too much. There was a, a booker at Stand Up New York who preceded you there, I believe, um, uh, asked, me, I said, I you know, I really wanted to do like whatever weekends or whatever. And, and he's like, listen, if you show me your dick, I'll put you on a weekend. It was late. You know, it, 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 we're all drinking stand in San and That's not weird then. And I was like, I said to him, how about I'll show you one of my balls for a Wednesday? And we agreed there. We agreed there. That's how negotiations took place back in the day in the New York Comedy Center.
0: This is a real thing? <laughs>
2: yeah, that, that actually happened. Okay. <laughs> nothing about that. Nothing about that was exaggerated in any way.
0: <laughs> so, Pete, I actually saw you on Bill Maher. You've been on mm-hmm. Bill Maher as a as a, as a contributor, which is pretty cool. Is that what they call it? You're on the panel, you're a contributor. Oh.
2: Yeah, I was a guest on the bill, on Real Time, yeah. You
0: know, where social media is right now, the insanity of social media and media in general, um, when it pertains to comedians and their opinions and what they say on social media or in media, how do you decide what's okay to say? You're, you're on the air so much or you have been. do you ever get off and go, oh, I shouldn't have said that or this could land me in trouble? How do you navigate that?
2: I rarely have any concern about that. Honestly, I uh, I think that it's fairly easy to navigate that situation. I think the concern about political correctness and cancel culture is extremely overblown. I think it gets way too much attention, given the fact that there are way more important issues. I think the only people that are really worried about that are people who have been used to being in charge for a long time and being able to say whatever they want. I think that to some extent they're being limited and they're mad about that. But the, on the flip side of that, it's, it's other people saying, you know what? Um, I don't want to be seen as an object or as a lesser than, and, and it's an interesting time and an, an important conversation, but I think it's uh, the, the conversation. I mean, I'm on TV and you name it, every network I've been everywhere. And I don't, I don't worry about what I'm going to say. Cause I don't have feelings in my heart that or in my conscience that would and I'm very conditioned to and and I think sensitive about feminism, uh, gender equity, racial equity, racial injustice, all these things I've been thinking about, reading about, learning about for over 10 years. And so, you know, it doesn't occur to me to say and think certain things. And I also think comedians get way too much respect It's like, you know, as thought leaders, some of them are thought leaders, Mm -hmm. but most of them aren't. Most of them are fucking stupid, stupid, (laughs) dumb, stupid people just. And and I mean, they might have a super like a very high IQ. They might be very intelligent people, but they're not learned. They're not educated. And you you have to learn from masters. And there are masters in economics. There are masters in energy. And there are masters in healthcare and racism and religion and history, there are masters. And if you don't haven't learned from a wide range of the masters, then then stop acting like you know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, and comedians, yeah. because of the nature of our ability to perform and demand and, and, and own a stage and an audience, you can say something with a certain confidence and assertion sound like, you know, you're talking about, but you're a, you're stone cold, stupid. If you're talking to somebody who's a master, who's educated, who's, who's, who's a practitioner, who's credible when it comes to things like economics, you have all these libertarian comedians. They're so unbelievably dumb. They're so dumb. And it doesn't mean I'm smarter than them. It means I know 10 people who are, And if any of them talk to those 10 people, they'd look like little uh, kids, little babies in a sandbox.
0: One thing thing that you really seem to espouse, if that's the right word, is question everything. You're willing to be, you know, you'll take both sides of an issue, not to use the- No,
2: I mean, I I think, well, first of all, you are falling into the idea that, you know, there's a binary, that there's two sides every issue. Some some issues, there's only one side. I have no interest in hearing your opinion on whether or not men land on the moon. I have no interest. You're uninteresting to me you know Your theories do. around th- who won the election are uninteresting to me. You're uninteresting. I have no time for that. I'm not interested in your questioning of of, of certain scientific uh, consensuses. And so my thing is, like, the, the, I don't like arrogance. I don't like the idea that someone acts like they know what they're talking about if you're in a conversation with someone else who knows more about what they're talking about, but more importantly, it's, it's more fundamental. It's more basic. Listen, I've, I, I just like, I insulated the shed that I broadcast from. I put up the drywall some framing and I helped with the electric, but I had a master. He was here the whole time, the whole time. I never argued with him about anything. I just learned, how to do it. He told me how to do it. I, I'm not a man. I can't teach you guys how to how to do it, but I wouldn't challenge him. And the same goes for conversations about things like economics or, or history or healthcare, like health policy, health insurance. These are really, really complex issues environmentalism, energy, um, all economics, all these things are very complex, but there are people who spend their entire life and career doing research right. and and leading organizations and hearing every argument. And they're, those are, just talk to them.
0: Right. Just ask
2: them, be humble. Don't be an arrogant prick. If, if you, you know, you don't know how to fly the plane. So ask a pilot. So everybody has these informed opinions and they've done their quote research on Google, but it's most of that stuff is uninteresting to me because because of the nature of my work is I ask experts questions every day. That's Very what I've been doing.
0: Nice. But you're a great communicator. So my point is someone who has all these wrong facts, but has the, the skill and the audience where you could be sort of a stumbling goofball. Sure. And be a master, right? Sure, heard, and that's the problem,
2: right? Sure, no, it's you're absolutely right. You, you know, but but just think about it. I mean, I I tell my daughters to in this the world our kids are grown up in is, is nuts because there's just so much information com- coming at them, and it looks good and it looks right. And my daughters will come sometimes and ask me like some bizarre questions about things. Like, Dad, did you hear about this thing that happened? I'm like, eh, uh, that didn't happen. Did you hear about that? The a hornet ate a baby. now didn't. I don't know. Check your source is what I say to my kids. And adults need to hear that, too. Check your source. What are your sources? And then everybody argues about their sources and so on. But no, the truth is there are there are people, mostly men who have made a living, uh, let's say, in a traditional three hour radio talk shows uh, for years. They talk three hours a day. Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh on the right, on the left. um, You know, you've got you don't really have anybody who has done that kind of radio show. Tom Hartman is the only one, Uh, but they're doing, they're playing completely different games and you can't talk for three hours about health policy, economic policy, foreign policy. You can't and and really, and, and, and be smart. I mean, they can, and they do, they're great. But if you really want to know about those issues, then you ask uh, someone who has spent their whole life doing it. So I created a show. I looked at those shows. I was like, well, I don't know any of this stuff, so I couldn't fill up three hours bullshitting about it. I'm not. It's not that I'm not as good as Hannity or, or those guys. But, but
1: do they actually know? I mean,
2: no, they don't, no, they don't. They don't know. They're not very curious. They're they they. What their job is to come up with convincing arguments, as Mike was saying, like convincing arguments. What they do is they spend their day thinking about convincing arguments. And if you'll notice, and I've been you know watching media as well as being a part of it my entire career they spend a lot of time talking about other media. The media is telling you this or this specific show. They do a lot of that. Whereas I spend a lot of time talking to uh, economists, scientists, academics, journalists, doctors, teachers, people who do stuff their entire life on a, on a small range of issues. Like my hobby is gardening. So I don't ask any welders about how to be a better gardener because they're fucking welders. And so that's, that's my, what I've always been doing. And I try to soak in what these people tell me, but I have a memory of a fish.
1: It's amazing that guys have these voices though, that are non-factual. They make them up and they have an audience.
2: Yeah. I mean, everybody has an audience now, Mo. Everybody. I saw a guy, this guy had an audience, his show on YouTube was, he was watching a show and the camera's on him watching it. OK, he had more views than my best stand up clip. I want to put a gun in my mouth. I'm like, that's his show. His show is what just the cameras on him watching of the show. Thousands of views. Thousands. So, I mean, that's the world we're living in.
0: That's, I wanted that's to, an industry called reaction videos, of, you know, where you just react to shit. Yeah. It's huge. And there are people who are stars for having the best reaction. It's, it's mind
1: blowing to me. See, see, Pete, I wanted to go back to. Me and Mike were talking, we, we've asked a few comics this a few times, but you know what you said, paying dues. You've done every gig possible. Every, you name it. Gig. But these comics today, all they need is a YouTube clip. One five minute YouTube clip put yeah. together. Yeah. Uh, perhaps even put together from different various comics. Right. Yeah. And and it's it, it pisses me off because I'm an old school guy. I believe yeah. in old stand up, like you do it the traditional way that it seems like it's dying. It's
2: yes, like, yeah, but, but here's the thing about that. Let me help you, but let me rip the bandaid off real hard and fast for you. And you might, are you sitting down?
1: I am sitting down, buddy.
2: Someone did this to me and I'm going to pay it forward to you. You old ass grandpa. Ancient relic of a person like. Yes, I am. We we want these young people to know the struggle of comedy and earning your stripes and doing the things and 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 labeling your VHS cassettes and going and sitting with Pete Kluzman and his nicotine cancer covered
0: Pete
2: <laughs> midtown office with no windows covered in the dreams of broken tapes of comedian sets. He was the only videographer in town. And, you know, once comedians know a guy, they just all go to the same guy. Pete was a legend. He was a Vietnam veteran, actually. But the, yeah, if anybody knows where Pete is, I'd love to uh, connect. I would love to find him. Yeah. But the thing is, someone did this to me, and I'm doing it to you. Like, that's the old world. The new world is, you know what? Access. Anybody can jump off. And in a weird kind of way, there is a certain meritocracy to that, where if you do well enough, if if you're putting out good enough content, and you work hard and you're consistent about it, you know, some, something can happen. And so I think we just need to let go of, of what technology offered our industry and our careers back then and, and, and not put it upon young people coming up because they're going to just replace us unless we adapt and find our audiences enough to make, make a living, which is what I've been able to do, you know? I mean, my audience is not made up of, of uh, 20-year-olds and I don't want it to be. The question, I think the, the better question not to take over and, and, and ask important question, but it always comes to me is, is what is the future of comedy specifically what is the future of live comedy and I think that live comedy and live music, I think jazz joints and comedy joints. And I mean, low ceiling places where at late at night in the village you can find, or, you know, on weekends in any city in America, uh, a group of people that are willing to go see a play, uh, a musical, a, a band, uh, a jazz quartet, or a stand-up comedian. I think that c- that continues. I think it continues in the way that it, it has traditionally. I think the idea that people sitting in a room, as long as um, they're not that worried about, you know, getting sick and hopefully we Get to that point, um, then we get back to that. Especially now, because people like to come together, and right. and we have this common experience. I mean, there's going to be a lot of comedy that comes out of the COVID experience, the COVID generation, because we all share the same things, and though therein lies the comedy about it all. So, I think the future of live comedy, unless you know something, and it's my opinion that it will. And live uh, performance is, is is good. I think it'll be traditionally. So I think there'll always be a place for those comedians who, by the way, when people always say, oh, I don't know how you get up there. Oh, it's so brave what you do. I used to take that all the time and be like, yeah, I'm a very brave person. But the truth about it, and if comedians were being honest and more self-aware, they'd say, I, I have to do it. I'm addicted to it. I love it. That's what's weird. You find it terrifying because you – because you're, quote, normal. You, it is terrifying. It's a weird thing to do. And I'm weird in that I want that attention and I want that. And most people don't. So it's not that brave because you kind of need it in, in a way, especially once you experience it.
1: Yeah. But you know, to, but, but you know I, was, I was thinking about since the COVID, Pete, though, a lot of comics who weren't doing this platform, uh, they were used to doing stand-up, being on the road, making a living in that way. And when the COVID hit, a shock shock wave went through the comedy community because guys started doing this podcasting, they're trying to catch up and, and they find it very difficult and very, when you were doing this 15 years already, you've been kind of, you went through the rocky roads of it, but these guys are just now starting to feel how hard it is to build an audience and be entertaining, be smart.
2: I don't, I don't know. It is interesting to see a, a lot of comics move into the podcast space and, and, and see how they work together and how they promote each other and, and, and all of that. And, and some guys are more generous than others. And some guys are more talented than others at it. And it's interesting to see how they figure out why, I mean, a lot of comedians obviously think you just turn the microphone on and you're going to, you're going to have magic. But the truth is, you got to know how uh, uh, to, to have a conversation that would be interesting the same way as a 15 minute or, or, or hour long set is interesting. You, you can't it just doesn't just happen. And so it's interesting to see. And I think that the people who do a good job at it or I think the, the the great thing about it is that you only need like 3000 people. And you can make a good living. Like that's what I'm doing now. I mean, people are paying for my daily podcast. So it's a grind. It's a lot of work, but you know, it's almost a thousand people. It's, 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 it's starting to become good money. It's starting to become like what I made in corporate, uh, at Sirius XM. I mean, my ending salary there was $250,000, but they made billions of dollars, you know? And so now if I can make 250,000, and, you know, how many people that I have listening, I don't know, but it was corporate media. If I can have, you know, 5,000 people listening and and 2,000 of them pay I'm, and I'm broadcasting out of my shed, it's a, it's a great economy of, of product. And I think that the idea that there was only one opportunity to succeed right, through Comedy Central or Netflix and having the audience that a, a network provided you on their platform, much less in a generation before us, The Tonight Show, that's changed. Now we all have the opportunity to create an audience if if you're good. And that's why people should listen to Stand Up With Pete Dominic because I'm very, very good. Well-
0: I think that's so true what you said, which is people think you turn on a mic and you just start hanging out. And it's so much more than that because you can listen to a bad podcast or even- on the radio sometimes and you're like, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like you just tune out, turn off. Have you seen yourself grow? Do you have a, is there a way to become better beyond just doing it?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that you can listen to, again, going back to what I said about the masters, people who are good at it. I mean, I I worked at Sirius XM and and so I listened to and watched and talked, you know, uh, Howard and the way that he did things, Howard Stern. And I was good friends with everybody on his staff. And so I would get behind the scenes ideas on how it all worked. But I also came up as a comedian and 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 a warm-up comedian, which really makes a difference because I was I'm, I'm able to, as a comedian, you're able to the type I am, my talent, my special sense is feeling empathy. Empathy, feeling how the audience is feeling in this very moment about the words I'm saying and and seeing their physical reaction to it? Are they paying attention? So I know what's interesting for the most part, even when I'm talking alone in my shed or in a studio, because I have I have so much experience with human behavior live in front of them. So I, I have that, but then I listen to the people uh, the, who are great, who are popular. And then I say, why are they interesting? Why are they popular? And then I you know, I replicate to a certain extent what works and obviously have my own flair and and flavor. I'm not some super unique original voice, but I want to be interesting in every moment that I'm talking. And I don't want to be annoying to listen to, whether it be in the tone of my voice or the words that I'm using with verbal crutches and so on. I think a lot about communication. And at this point, uh, for example, right in this very moment, how long I've been uh, speaking I know almost exactly how long I've been talking
0: well you know what's funny Mo and I always talk after we interview someone because like, you cannot engage enough whether you you're just asking questions sometimes you share too much you're telling some long like as the interviewer you're telling some long-winded story yeah. that You're like I should have cut this short um it's really an art form and it's a fascinating one because I don't think it gets I think in journalism it gets a lot of respect I think I know you're saying live performance, but there are comics who I I've heard them. They they're just I don't know if it's a lack of uh, it's a different type of respect for an audience that's just listening on headphones. But they're they're not thinking of it as a craft. They're very much getting stoned in a living room. There's nothing wrong with that.
2: Why would you want to watch a comedian perform? Why would you want to watch a person give a speech, a politician or a self-helper? Gary V. Why would why would you want to watch somebody? Why would you want to listen to a conversation between these two, three, four people? Why? What's interesting. And so I have an inner monologue literally constantly like tick tocking in my head. Is this interesting? Question mark. Is this interesting? It's constant. It's constant. That's why I have very little patience with people who don't interest me. And that's a weakness of mine. It really is. But like I stopped being interested in you guys like 45 minutes ago.
0: I'm actually just getting interested in you, So I'm the other way. You're finally lighting me on fire, Pete. <laughs> uh, would you be willing to share a moment that you've had in your career? Um, and we keep it career-based, but of self-doubt. Because I think everyone just feels like they had it figured out. Even when they didn't mean to give that impression, it still comes across with that. So I would love if you'd be open to talking about a time where you were unsure of anything.
2: Well, I like the question, and I think it's um, an interesting one that requires the guest to be vulnerable, which I enjoy and think more people need to be. Uh, most of my career, I felt like I would continue to succeed and never thought I was going to be the best of the best, never wanted to be, never was at anything I did, but I was always pretty good. And I thought I would continue to grow and succeed and, and, and get work and I think I got pretty comfortable in in kind of the CNNs, Comedy Centrals, and especially Sirius XMs that were established media companies employing me as a full-time employee. That's not something that most people, Americans, get a shot at, much less comedians, much less anybody in media. And so it got great, and I worked really hard at it, but it, it was great. And then- In 2019, October, after six contracts, you know, like eight promotions uh, and a lot of success, Sirius told me they 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 were getting rid of my channel. They wanted to continue. They wanted to keep me on, but they didn't know where I would live if they were going to kill my channel and basically left it up to me. You have a lot of relationships here. You think you can get your show on some other channel? And I was like, oh, this is it. It's over. And. It was a a ride that, you know, Russman Eve is a great comic. And I saw him shortly after my ride ended at Sirius XM after 14 years. And I was complaining to him. I was like, yeah, I'm having a hard time. I'm really worried about the future. And he goes, uh, you had a 14 year gig. Jesus. Nobody has that. Are you kidding me right now? Are you kidding me right now? And it was like, it like really shocked the shit out of me, his perspective. And um, and I'll never uh, be able to appreciate that enough because it was so honest and thoughtful. And that's how comics are with each other, of course. But I didn't think that I would be able to turn what I had there into something successful, monetize it, given the abundance of podcasts and channels and media. of it Like there's a billion channels, places that go. Nobody's making any money, hardly. But there were some. There were some guys that were making money. And I thought, well, I'm better than them. And so if I can figure this out, you know, then I can make money. And 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 so I basically well, didn't think got- did not think I was gonna be able to do this. And then I worked night and day, seven days a week, learned the software, learned the business. I created my own podcast, did it three days a week basically it turned out that my value was my network of people i knew that would join me in this conversation made it daily when we when the quarantine started and it's been amazing but it's been because of a tremendous amount of hard work at 45 age 45 where i didn't think i would never ever need to work as hard but like i did not think i would succeed after i when i started this i did not think it would succeed coming full circle it was the time that my wife believed in me that mattered the most she was like dude give it a year you're going to succeed i know you and then she in fact peeled me off the floor every day for months maybe 3 months where she gave me a talk and um, she helped me build my re- my resilience and then the audience that i'd built over 14 years also came and supported me and joined me and continues to grow. So it's, it, it was, it, my self doubt was October, 2019 into Jan into March, 2020, where I was just
0: well, terrified.
2: I, I, my kids were older. I had, had so much success. People were recognized me on the street and all of a sudden I'm unemployed, nothing. I go from a bunch of corporate gigs, all kinds of stuff, riding high, you name it, doing great to what the fuck. And That was one of those moments in life where you either, you know, sink or swim. And I was like, it was hard. It was hard. I wanted to die. I didn't want to commit suicide, but I definitely wanted to die. I had it so good. And all of a sudden it was gone. All of a sudden I'm like, where are we going to get health insurance? You know, and buy a used car, all that shit. I went through all kinds of shit, but I just, I was real honest, real vulnerable and worked very hard. And here I am every day.
0: I appreciate you sharing that, man. I mean, you know, those moments where you're talking about your wife peeling you off the floor, you know, that uncertainty that we just as human beings suck at, but just having the trust in I'm going to do this. And it's not always easy. I think it's such an important message.
2: Dude, it was, it was done. There was no trust. I thought it was over. I thought it was all over. Wow. I thought my life was over. I thought my ride was over. I thought, doing what I loved and making money doing it was over I thought having a huge audience of people who loved me and respected what I was doing was over uh, and frankly by the way just to be clear that'd have been fine if money wasn't an issue I would have never touched a microphone or a camera again if I could make enough money to support my family and get health care by being a park ranger on a horse I'd have been content because i because gentlemen i did it like i did it i did everything i wanted to do in my life and in my career by 44 all of it and even before then i interviewed john lewis at the aspen ideas festival like that's it done everything after that or any number of other accomplishments, I would argue. And the impact that I had on an audience of a generation of, 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 of people who listened for 10 years, they listened to the conversation I had and an impact of their life in a positive way. It made them better husbands and fathers It made them more curious folks, more critical thinkers. Cause they learned along with me every day. I did it. I was fine with it, but I had to continue working to support my family. And so I made this, I was able to figure out how to make this work so far and I don't have that doubt anymore. I think I'll continue to succeed.
1: We are so happy to, to have you today, man. Um, and it's great to see you, brother. Thank you for the insight,
2: Boy, man. It's great to see you, Mike. It's great to see you. Great questions. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you guys. Thank you guys very, very much. Thanks. Definitely, man. All right, guys.
1: Good night, brother. Bye.
0: Okay, Mo, let them know how they can support us.
1: Make sure to subscribe to Comedy Anatomy and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Comedy Anatomy and on Twitter at Comedy underscore Anatomy.